Thanks again for being here. If you want to pull your Bible out, set it on your lap, turn to a few places with me. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Matthew chapter 5, 2 Peter chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 5, Mark chapter 16. I read about a study that was performed on churches just like ours, and the results came back pretty interesting. Of the people surveyed, 51% said that God would receive any well-intentioned worship, uh, no matter what religion you were. So it didn't matter who, how, what you were worshiping. If you meant it from your heart, then ultimately God would receive it. 52% also said that humanity in general is good-natured. And 78% of people believed that Jesus was the first being that God created. The northeast corner of London's Hyde Park is the speaker's corner. It's a public speech and debate place. So if you have something that you want to get off your chest, you want to debate ideas, you can go to that corner and take a turn and have an argument with people. So if you took those three ideas that I just mentioned to the speaker's corner in the northeast corner of Hyde Park, I doubt that you would get very much debate. Um, God receives well-intentioned worship. People, for the most part, are good-natured, and Jesus is the first being that God created. Those all sound like things that are true, but if you read the Scripture, the Scripture disagrees with all three of those ideas. A couple of weeks ago, we sent out a notification via our app, and we asked you a pretty simple question. I wish I knew more of what the Bible said about dot, 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 and you told us what you wanted to know more about the scripture. And I think that's important because sometimes the things that we think are true or sound true don't align with the scripture. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks leading up to Advent answering some of the questions that you sent in. Starting with today, question number one, can I trust my Bible? Can I trust my Bible? Second Timothy chapter 3 Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So there are two truths here, principles, ideas, promises, that the scripture is breathed out by God, meaning God inspired it, and that the scripture is profitable. How do I know that those two things are true? Uh, The Bible is 66 books written by 40 plus authors over a span of 1500 years. 66 books written by 40 plus authors in a span of 1500 years. Now here's why that's important. Because the number one thing you will hear about the scripture is it's all a conspiracy. Our Christian faith is a conspiracy. And the Bible has been created to support that conspiracy that Jesus has been raised from the dead and we should offer our lives to him. But the fact that the Bible was inspired by God by 40 plus authors over a span of 1500 years is good news in answering that conspiracy theory because what it means is that the author of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, 
which is Moses, could not have conspired with the author of the last book of the Bible, Revelation, which was John, because they lived 1,400 years apart. They couldn't have gotten together and said, uh, hey, uh, John, listen, this is what I'm writing in Genesis. So whatever you write, I need you to agree and affirm so we're on the same page. There was no way that could happen. 66 books, 40 plus authors in a span of 1,500 years. There are all kinds of genres within the Bible. There's poetry, poetry, prophecy, history, psalms, wisdom literature, law, letters. We get the word Bible from the 4th century, A.D. 388, when someone referred to it as Ta Biblia, which in Greek means the books. That's where we get the word Bible. 66 books, 40 plus authors over a span of 1,500 years, and yet they all come together to tell one seamless story. God created the world. He created a people we know as Israel. Through that people, he demonstrated how he makes covenants with human beings, how he is loyal to that covenant. Through prophets, he told them he would send a savior to not just fix their sin problem, but the whole world's sin problem. Jesus comes as that savior, not just a savior, but God's own son sent as the savior. Jesus showed us how to live in his kingdom. Then he offered his life on the cross so we can receive forgiveness of the sins. He defeated death and hell through the resurrection and the rest of the Bible is the now what? While we wait for his return, here's how we live in Jesus' name in this world. 66 book, 40 plus authors, 1500 years telling one seamless story. The scripture claims to be scripture. We already have seen that in Second Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is breathed out by God. But other places show us that too. Jesus believed that the Old Testament was the word of God. We see that in Matthew chapter 5 if you want to turn there with me. Jesus references the Old Testament consistently. And look how he speaks of it. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. Jesus is saying the Old Testament scripture, the law and the prophets are God's word. That's why all of it will come to pass. Every period, every comma, every question mark, every jot, every tittle, every iota will come to pass. It will be fulfilled. The apostle Paul believed that he was writing more than mere words. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When he says in verse 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So he's saying to the Corinthians, when we spoke to you, we're not just speaking mere human words. We're speaking things that the Spirit of God has given to us. So Paul's letters are not just things that he thinks the Corinthians should know. He is elevating them. This is from the very spirit of God. Peter, one of the other apostles, 
spoke about Paul's words in a similar way. First Peter, Second Peter chapter 3. If you want to turn there with me, Second Peter chapter 3. Verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter says about Paul's writings, listen, he wrote you a letter Listen to it. I know it's hard to understand, which makes me feel good because I also find the Bible hard to understand sometimes. So Peter says, I know it's hard to understand, but listen to it. Don't be like the ignorant and foolish who twist Paul's words to make them fit their own agenda. And then he says this other phrase, which is powerful, as they do the other scriptures. So Peter is lifting up Paul's letter to these first Christians on par with the scripture. And then the Apostle Paul believed that Luke's gospel was the scripture. Here's how we know that. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse It says, for the scripture says, and then quotations, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. That's from Deuteronomy. And another quotation, the laborer deserves his wages. That is a quote from Luke's gospel, which was written, scholars think, two years before Paul wrote 1 Timothy. So Paul is saying, the scripture says, then quotes Deuteronomy, which Jesus affirmed as the word of God. And then he quotes Luke's gospel, also saying it's the scripture. The point is, the scripture claims to be scripture. Jesus believed that the Old Testament was more than just good advice. Paul believed his own words were more than good advice. Peter believed Paul's words were more than good advice. And Paul believed Luke's gospel was more than good advice. It was the scripture, the word of God. But the question we're answering today, is my copy reliable? That may be easy to believe, that those originals were the word of God. But what about my copy? Every generation has its own skepticism towards the Bible. The arguments are not new. They're just rehashed and reframed. The the most consistent one today is that the scripture is a mix of truth and error. So both are in there. There's truth. There are things that are from God. But there's also a lot of error in it. So maybe Luke's gospel was originally filled with truth and Paul's Letters and the Old Testament, they were all filled with truth. But over time, over the last 1,500 years, lots of people have inserted their own opinions in there. And now we're not able to tell what is the original truth and what is just 
human beings' opinions, there's a mix there. It's been corrupted by history. Can I trust my copy of the Bible? That's why there's this thing called textual criticism. If you're, um, well, A, if you're bored, you don't have to listen, of course, you're a grown adult. Uh, But if you're a nerd, you might find this interesting. Textual criticism is when a group of scholars try to find the original meaning of the original authors, even though they don't have a copy of the original document. Right, The original meaning from the original authors, even though they don't have a copy of the original document. So that we don't have the originals to Luke's gospel or 1 Corinthians. Those have been lost over time. What we do have are copies. Now you may think, well, well right there, there's a hole in my confidence in the scripture. We're not going off original documents. We're, we're just going off of copies, right? Well, every historical document that you've ever believed in past the last 500 years is a copy of an original. All of those documents have been lost, but most of the time we're not concerned with that. Like I brought this little chart, uh, if you don't mind. Uh, it's uh, how many copies, not that one, a different one, There we go. Um, This is how many copies of other historical documents we have. Right? Uh, so you're not going to recognize any of these, uh, these Greek names, but these are Greek historians. They are well accepted. I know it's hard to see. Well accepted. Very few people doubt the validity of their histories, right? And so of one of the most prominent ones, the most recent ones, we have only 75 manuscripts from their um, original works. We have 75 copies. Well, one, we have 200 plus conf- copies. So that would give you a lot of confidence of just New Testament written in Greek. We have 5,700 copies. Right? If you take Latin copies, um, we have over 10,000. And, and then beyond that in other language, we have thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And so what scholars do is they take all of these copies And they compare them. And where there is alignment, we know now we understand what those original authors wrote. Because there's alignment in these thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of ancient copies. This also proves that those first Christians believed these letters of the New Testament that they were receiving were the word of God. Think about how much you would have to believe in your favorite book to handwrite a copy of it. Like you may love the Chronicles of Narnia. You don't love it that much. You may be all in on Catcher in the Rye. Mm-mm. But when they received the letter to the Galatians, the Galatians and the other churches in that region, they knew this was more than human words. So they were careful to make a copy. Christians after that were making copies upon copies upon copies upon copies. Now there are differences in those copies. So I brought another chart. I think, well, it's in the differences that we uh, maybe get those errors. The blue, that's 75% of the differences in those thousands and thousands and thousands of copies. Spelling. 75% of the difference spelling errors. If you're a teacher, you understand this. Most people do not know how to spell and those original people didn't either. So when people say there are errors in the scripture, you can say, I know that. They're spelling errors. The next biggest chunk, 23% of the differences between those thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of copies are order. So there may be a list of synonyms. One copy puts it 
one, two, three. The next copy puts it two, three, one. It's the same sentence, just in a little bit different order. So so 97% of the differences in those thousands and thousands and thousands of copies, spelling and order. 2% of the differences in those copies are significant in the sense of a word is missing from this copy or a word is added in another copy, but it's only one or two copies, not hundreds and hundreds. So that lets us know that that is not viable for knowing, is this, is this the original meaning? And then you can't even see the tiny slice, less than 1%, it's green. Those are the meaningful differences. Those put a question mark. You think, well, what about those? That's where the error could be. Well, like I said, there is no conspiracy. The scholars responsible for translating the scripture, they want you to know those things. So whenever it's that less than 1%, which could be a meaningful difference in those original copies, they let you know. I want to prove that to you. Mark chapter 16, turn there with me. The first eight verses of Mark chapter 16 are the story of Jesus' resurrection. But in between verse 8 and verse 9 in your Bible, if you have a copy of it, there's an asterisk or there are brackets. And in my Bible, right above verse 9, it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. So what that means is 100 years ago, or 400 years ago, when the King James Version was being translated, they went to the earliest manuscript copies of the New Testament. And in those earliest manuscripts, verses 9 through 20 were there. So they put it in our Bible. But over time, archaeologists are working, working, working. They're discovering new copies of these manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls, hundreds and hundreds of copies of some of the New Testament books. When they put in those new copies, those newest ones, those earliest ones, those oldest ones, they don't have verses 9 through 20. But because this is not a conspiracy... Because there's not a publisher who owns all of the rights to the Bible and makes sure that only the things that are positive towards Christianity get in there, they tell you the truth. So they put a little asterisk, they put a little bracket, and they let you know. So as you're reading the scripture, anytime you see an asterisk, you go down to the bottom and it will tell you what's going on. Many of you have heard the story about the woman who was caught in adultery. The the religious leaders, they grabbed her out of the home. It makes it sound like they grabbed her out of the act of committing adultery and they brought her before Jesus because they were going to try to trap Jesus because he had tremendous compassion, but it's clear that she was breaking God's law. So they thought he's stuck. He's going to have to choose one or the other, God's law or compassion. And you remember he writes something in the sand and then he says, let him who has no sin cast the first stone and they drop their stones and they go away. And he says, you go and sin no more. Well, when you turn there and read that story later, you'll see an asterisk. And it will say the same thing that Mark chapter 16 says, the earliest copy of the gospel of Mark does not include this story. It's a good story, fits with what we think about Jesus. It probably happened. 
But because the earliest copies of the New Testament don't have that story in there, our modern day Bibles want us to know that. There is no conspiracy. Anytime archaeologists find information that's important to us, they make sure that we know. What we can have confidence of compared to other historical works that most of us have no problem believing, the Bible has an overwhelming number of available copies. The scripture believed it's scripture. History tells us that it's credible. But that's not really our problem with the Bible. Our problem with the Bible is that it puts me at odds with myself or with people I care about. Most of us weren't sitting around this week thinking, you know, I would really read this. But those variants in those original Greek copies, I just, it's just really bothering me. A problem with the Bible is that we don't like all of the Bible says. It's like when I go to the doctor. She tells me, at your age, you need to start exercising and you, start need, you need to start eating right. And I'm like, uh-huh. I could not agree with you more. But I don't want to. Her words put me at odds with myself and what I want to do. The truth is that most of our culture's problem with the Bible isn't rooted in history. It's not rooted in accuracy. It's not rooted in transmission. It's the fact that we don't like all that it says. So there is a movement today of creating a Bible within our Bible where essentially we take the parts that we do like. We, we love the Gospels. Who doesn't love the Gospel? So you take those, you put them in the Bible within a Bible. You take some of Paul's lesser offensive work, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. You put that in there and you leave out the harder things. The harder things of you believe in Jesus, that he's been resurrected from the dead. Now do this and don't do this. We leave those out. We leave out the parts that maybe don't totally align with whatever cultural moment we are in. We find a Bible within a Bible because we don't like being at odds with it. The other reason that most of us lack confidence in the scripture is because of a lack of reading. One of my favorite shows on television is Chasing classic cars, it's on the Velocity Channel. It's this guy who goes into barns all over northeast, uh, the northeastern part of the United States, and uh, he buys and sells uh, old vintage cars. And so people will call him. Their great-grandfather bought some car from the 1930s and put it in a barn, and uh, it's in pristine condition. So he'll go to the house and, and, and see it, and it looks great on the outside. And he always asks him the same question. When was the last time that you had it running? And you see a crisis of a faith in that moment, a crisis in their face, because if it starts, 
they make thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands more dollars than if he cranks the ignition and it doesn't start. So they always try to tell him something that probably isn't true. Oh, we had it running, you know, last week or uh, uh, in the last year, right? But there's the moment of truth when he goes to start it. Sometimes it does and, and sometimes it doesn't. But the people who are not nervous, and you can see it on their face, the people who are not nervous when he goes to start it are the people who have actually had it out and, dri- and have driven it lately. The people who just have it in the barn and haven't started it in a year, they're the ones who are nervous because of a lack of use. It's the same thing with the scripture. I have yet to meet the person who reads the scripture consistently and faithfully and yet lacks confidence in it. It's, it's those of us who are just, our interaction with the Bible is on someone's Instagram post. If you are being discipled by people's Facebook posts, you probably have very little confidence in the scripture. Because you're not reading it. You're not starting the car often enough to know, that, does it work? Because that's the thing about the Bible it, Our confidence in it doesn't just come from history and copies and manuscripts. Hebrews tells us that the word of God is living and active. It's God breathed. It has the life of God in it. So the more you read it, the more confidence you will have in it. Backed up by history and facts and archaeology. And you want confidence in the word of God. Because Jesus is clear that we submit ourselves fully and totally to the will of God. Martin Luther said, my conscience is captive to the scripture. I think what a, about what a bold statement that is. Your conscience, the thing that helps you determine right and wrong. I'm going to do this, I'm not going to do that. That, that decision-making ability, which is probably one of the most precious things to you. He says, I make that a slave, a servant to the word of God. There's no way that you will do that if you lack confidence that the Bible is the word of God. So if you lack confidence today because you don't know facts, go and find out the facts. But if you lack confidence today because you've not been reading, start reading. Because if this is the word of God, what a gift we have been given. That God's revealed will in the world and in our lives is available to us whenever we are moved to open it. So question number one, is my copy of the Bible trustworthy? I believe it is. Let's pray.